You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Technological change, new ideas about teaching and learning, and evolving workforce needs are driving transformative change in the education sector from grade school to grad school. On Thursday, January 17th, the Washington Post hosted a gathering of leading educators and innovators. In this segment, educators and administrators in higher education talk about the investments traditional colleges and universities are making in innovative online courses, global campuses, and international study initiatives in order to stay competitive and appeal to diverse student populations. Let's listen. Hello. Thank you all for being here, for joining us. Uh, my name is Nick Anderson. I'm a higher education reporter here at The Post. I've been writing about universities and colleges for about seven years now, and I am pleased to be here with two experts from academia who are gonna talk with us about technology and globalization in higher education and some of the changes that we see and maybe some of the, uh, the goals that we might have uh, to open up universities and classrooms uh, to new perspectives. So right on my left here is Cynthia Miller Idris. Cynthia is a sociologist at the American University here in Washington, D.C., and she's also their director of the International Training and Education Program there in the School of Education. Um, Cynthia has a bachelor's from Cornell University and a doctorate from the University of Michigan. She's also recently a co-author of an, a book that's on this subject called Seeing the World, How U U.S. Universities Make Knowledge in a Global Era. So we're gonna talk a little bit about some of the ideas in that book. And to her left is Thomas Nichols. Um, Tom is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. He's also on the faculty of the Harvard Extension School. And he is uh, notably also a five-time Jeopardy champion. <laughs> he uh, holds a bachelor's degree from Boston University and a doctorate from Georgetown. And he is the recent author of a book that's also somewhat on point to our subject here called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. So um, thank you, Cynthia and Tom, for being here with us. And I'd like to open up our discussion by, oh, before, before I go any further, I'm sorry, I, I, I want to encourage those of you who are in the audience or watching us online to please tweet to us any questions that you might think that we should have here in the discussion at the hashtag postlive, and we'll track those questions and, and try to work them into our discussion. Now, um, I would like to t begin by talking about technological change as you see it in your classrooms. Um, there has been uh, much made of the idea that classroom instruction is changing and that technology is changing the way professors relate to students. But let's get real specific on the ground. How has your classroom changed, Cynthia? And then we'll, we'll get to your experiences, Tom, and we can talk a little bit about, about the pros and cons of this. <laughs> I mean, thank you for having me. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I would say for my classes, I teach pretty traditional seminar style graduate and undergraduate classes. 
Um, you know, when I first started teaching 16 years ago, I was still using overhead. I don't know if you remember the overhead projectors, but I was using overhead slides and, and having to make those. Um, so obviously there's some simple ways like PowerPoint, things that make my life easier with embedded video, um, with uh, Skype sessions that we, where we can meet the author and have them show up um, on screen for 15 or 20 minutes and students get to ask them questions. Um, you know, I rarely receive hard copies of papers anymore, mostly submissions uh, online um, through portals, through discussion portals that students engage with over the course of the week. Um, and most of their reading materials, except for actual hard copies of books, uh, most of their reading materials are online for them. So, um, so there's a kind of fluid engagement for them with online materials um, and with, with tech in the classroom. But when it comes to actually discussing, I mean, it's face-to-face. It's -face. And do you have any distance learning element in your classroom? Not in my classroom. No. I, although, you know, I have to go to a conference in April and we will um, set up a Zoom class for that. So in a, mm -hmm. in a, in a pinch, um, if I'm out of town, a couple of the students from that class will be with me in San Francisco at the conference and we will gather there and the rest of the class will Zoom in. And so, so there are, uh, it's not a hybrid class, but that is a way to not have to make up a class where we can still um, do content and, and use the tech to, to get through that missed class. And Tom, what about you? What, what's your experience with how technology has changed the way you interact with students? <clears throat> well, um, first thing I should say is that my views do not represent the Naval War College or the Harvard Extension School. Um, I, I think one of the interesting ways that technology has changed the educational experience is the impact it has on the students rather than, than what it has on me. Mm -hmm. um, it, things like the difficulty, uh, I've been teaching for a little over 30 years. Getting students to walk into a bricks and mortar library is really difficult and um, the serendipity of accidental discovery now happens for them online rather than in examining stacks of books. Um, it's a subtle difference, but it's important. Um, Cynthia was talking about getting papers handed in via online. Um, also, all papers are now I shouldn't say all, but a lot of the papers are now automatically first drafts mm -hmm. uh, because students are not drafting and typing and fixing that they, they're putting them on a screen. They look good. Um, and I think that's hurt writing and editing skills. Um, and, and created more work for you. Um, I, I don't, I mean, in a sense, you know, having the papers in front of me on a screen creates less work because I find that I type faster than I write. So I put a lot more comments on papers now than I used to when I had to scrawl them with my, you know, uh, dreaded red pen. Um, but I think it's also opened the students to a lot more possibility for information. I mean, they, it's, I think it's a great thing, for example, and I'm a technophile, so I should probably say that. I mean, I'm not resisting uh, the, the influence of technology on the student. I, I'm just concerned about it. Um, I like, for example, the fact that um, students will not just settle for what's on the syllabus. Yeah. There is a serendipity of a different kind where they start looking online. Uh, unfortunately, I lose control over that process. And by the way, you took me back with overheads, um, yeah. you know, with, with overhead slides, and it made me um, think of that, uh, that I've been teaching long enough that I, I used to finish class and then have to wash my hands because they're covered in chalk. Uh, and I think that's an improvement because I use embedded video. I use links yeah. that are live. Sometimes in the middle of the class I'll say, oh, there's something I'd really like you to see, and I just pull it up out of right. this vast repository. People talk uh, about flipping classrooms. Do you ever flip your classroom, and do you have a distance element? 
well, the Naval War College has its own distance program, and so they, that's a separate issue. I teach in the resident program. Harvard Extension School, um, the, the effect of distance education on what I do there over 15 years has been profound. Um, I think like Cynthia, we were talking about this earlier, you know, I was initially a skeptic. Mm -hmm. Now I've come, o I've come over to that, but also it's just the way the world is now. Mm -hmm. um, and there are good and bad aspects of that. I am, I, I am old fashioned. I, I, am, I want the students in the classroom with me. I'm a teacher. Mm -hmm. I want them where I can see them. I want them where I can kind of take their temperature, uh, see their facial expressions. Uh, and I find that the distance element adds a real challenge um, that maybe in some ways makes me a better teacher or makes me a more conscientious teacher, but it really is a level of challenge that I have to overcome. Well, that's interesting. Now, a lot of people in the higher education world were thinking a few years ago that um, the distance element through technology was really going to change things, mm -hmm. that somehow universities would be democratized and transformed by opening up uh, the world through technology and bringing, bringing professors such as yourselves to far-flung places. Um, do you feel that that uh, promise is still out there, that it's still viable? Uh, are you a fan of that mm -hmm. idea uh, or perhaps a skeptic? And let's talk yeah. about that. I'm, I would say I'm a fan of the idea. I think it's still largely an unrealized potential, but it's a potential to democratize um, knowledge, to, to create access, to create better pathways for equity. Um, you know, we have in, where I teach in the School of Education, um, we've had on, fully online programs only for about 18 months, and we've seen a 200% increase in the master's programs where we have those programs. Um, and I think the latest figures are 26% of U.S. Uh, master's level or graduate students um, are now enrolled in fully online programs. So, so we have to, even though that may not have changed my teaching that much, um, may not have changed Tom's teaching all that much. And I think we, ha we have to acknowledge that there are large numbers of students who are learning this way. And that it, and, and I will say in our school, um, it has radically, or not radically, but significantly diversified the student population. The online population is more diverse than the traditional population. Mm -hmm. So um, those statistics, again, is that bearing out nationally? I think that still has to be proven. I think it has the potential for first generation students, for working parents, for people who are constrained on time, can't physically get to campus, um, veterans. I think we have whole populations of students for whom online spaces can create more access. And, and Tom, you said you're a bit skeptical. Let's talk about MOOCs for a minute now. Uh, th this notion of massive open online courses, it was free, now there's some ch small charges that people pay sometimes, but massive was the idea, and that somehow a professor would reach um, tens of thousands of people, and that this was going to be a great thing. You're, you're not really on board with that idea. No. Uh, I, why not? Well, to go back to the conversation you're just having with Cynthia, I think um, we have to differentiate two things. Well, first, I think the technological optimism was always overblown about this. I mean, I, I remember when these debates began in the 90s, uh, and I think that sometimes we lose sight of uh, the technology is open-ended, that's gonna be great, but we lose sight of the limitations on human beings, that at some point we're running up against the natural limitations of how human beings learn. Uh, and the technology can keep getting better, but that's not gonna change the, the way your brain is structured. Um, when it comes to the, to the democratization of education, I mean, MOOCs, 
um, the, you know, the idea was that, again, you know, we'd have this, the world would be an open university. We need to differentiate between the students uh, who can't get any education at all, who have now been able to reach out. I mean, I, I first noticed this when I was teaching a course on Cold War history, and distance options made it possible for students in the former um, Soviet bloc to be, join my class. They couldn't come to the United States, but suddenly someone says, boy, I, remember, I'm, I live in Poland, you know, and I'm, I'm a student here. It's great, it made the class better, and for that student, there is no other way to get there. I think the problem with MOOCs and other distance options is that it puts a huge amount of responsibility on the student to be incredibly disciplined and organized. And I think- Students aren't incredibly disciplined and organized. I, I'm, I, I, I'm here to give you some breaking news about students. Uh, they are not incredibly disciplined and organized. And uh, I think that that promise of, well, we'll just put it all out there and you will all approach it with the diligence that as though you were under the guidance of a professor. I mean, I would think one of the problems, for example, with distance courses is when students say, well, it's, it's online. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was gonna go to class, but it, I'll get it online. And, that's and a, that's a bad option. And then, they, and then maybe they don't or they don't, um, they, they, that a question goes by that they may have wanted to spur the class with. Um, so I think in, for one group of students, especially people in less developed countries or newly democratized countries, this is great. For, stu for students who are gonna have to rely on a huge amount of discipline and initiative when it's right there available to them, I think that's actually encouraged some bad habits. So I, I wanna tap into the knowledge that both of you uh, uh, expressed in your books recently. Um, uh, Cynthia, yours on seeing the world, how U.S. universities make knowledge in a global era. Um, both of your books seem to me to be at least uh, broadly dealing with uh, a, a problem you see on, on the potential limits that we're putting on our knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so t talk to me about the lessons you learned from writing that and, yeah. and how they might apply to the universities as you're mm -hmm. seeing them. Um, so one of the things we learned in that book, and this is a book a team of scholars at this, uh, housed at the Social Science Research Council were studying 12 universities over a long period of time. Uh, and one of the things we found out in looking at how they organize knowledge about the rest of the world, uh, the world outside of the US, um, is that the social sciences systematically discourage graduate students from um, engaging in empirical research overseas. Really? Uh, and they do that because of their perceptions that the best way to secure a tenure track position um, is by working on, well, there are lots of different reasons. Sociologists do that because they feel the tenure track positions are better secured um, through working on domestic issues. The political scientists had other reasons um, and the economists we're working globally, but with universal, universal models, essentially. Um, but across the board, um, there was not real deep contextual specialized knowledge the way that I think um, when Tom was trained, when I was trained, when there was a lot more resource, um, uh, a lot more uh, resources, a lot of funding going into graduate support for, for training overseas. Um, those kinds of things were drying up and, and faculty were discouraging students from doing it. They were saying the best way to get a job is to, is to work on a domestic issue. Um, and that was, a, that was, we were surprised, but the data, the, is the, the interviews were very clear. So that's really interesting because it, it raises the, the question, are universities sort of paying lip service to globalization, but actually not really Yeah, I mean, what we, it? one of the things you find is that there's this tension between specialized knowledge 
and kind of cosmopolitan citizens. And a lot of what the push over the last 10 years in universities has been, the rise in study abroad has been predominantly in short-term study abroad courses, often as short as one or two weeks. Um, and they can be real learning experiences, but often they're geared more toward creating kind of cosmopolitan citizens who can you know, navigate public transportation worldwide than actual um, you know, developing kind of public um, knowledge that is rich and deep and um, embedded in, in local cultural Are you context. saying it's not enough to buy a Eurail pass? I mean, that's important <laughs> but um, as part of that process, but, um, but you know, and even a Eurail pass is at least two months, right? So, so you're, you're already talking uh, about a longer experience than, than what most Tom, are. your book is incredibly provocatively titled The Death of Expertise, um, and I wonder, um, it probably had an audience in mind that was not just universities, but talk to me a little bit about whether you see a death of expertise in universities too. Well, I think universities, uh, where the intellectuals have to bear their burden here, and this is related to the point Cynthia was making, um, that universities have become increasingly the province of jargon, of specialized theory, rather than knowing theorizers, rather than knowers. Um, I think a lot of, um, in a lot of universities, the term public intellectual is almost said with derision, mm -hmm. that you are not a real scholar if you are a public intellectual and you do something like we're doing right now. Um, I think part of the problem that Cynthia was talking about, for example, with globalization and traveling, uh, there was, a, at least in political science, for years there was a very strong attack on area specialists. Mm -hmm. Uh, that the idea that you could learn to speak Indonesian and you went to Jakarta and you studied the Indonesian system, oh, that's for saps. Yeah. Uh, what really matters is empirical, high-quality, uh, scientifically testable data. Um, and so you had people who knew everything about a particular model and knew nothing about Indonesia. And so the, a gap started to develop between the ability of these academics to talk about their area and what the public needed to know. Mm -hmm. So there is, I mean, I, I, I still put most of the burden, the, part of the reason the book's provocative is I put a lot of the burden on the public because the public just doesn't ask these questions, they don't pay attention, they have short attention spans, they'd rather watch TV. But, but um, intellectuals and academics have to bear their share of the They, the they have a here. greater role, they should play a greater role in engaging the public. And yes, and it's not fun. I mean, this, this is something that, you know, I mean, in a, in a pleasant environment like this, it's wonderful we're sitting here talking, but sometimes giving a public lecture, you know, it's open to the public and you're talking about something controversial, it's, it can be very unpleasant. But I would argue, as intellectuals, that is part of our obligation to society, is to engage in those things. I want to ask you both about a trend that we've been seeing lately uh, the last couple of years in international enrollment in, in the United States. Um, the, the data that we've been reporting from the Inter Institute of International Education shows that at, for at least two years there has been a decline in the number of new international students coming to the United States. Uh, some people are speculating that perhaps this is a result influenced by President Trump and the Trump administration's policies on student visas and, and immigration. I wondered if you have any concerns about this decline in international enrollment into the United States and uh, if you have any theories on what might be causing it. I mean, I have some concerns, obviously. I, I, I'm, I'm a, a proponent of flows of global students and scholars, but one of the things I would say is that I think there's a, a maximum capacity that we're always gonna hit with 
um, in-person exchanges, whatever they are. I think globally, the, it's something like 2% of, of students are, um, are, are participating in some kind of in-person face-to-face exchange. And you know, connecting back to the tech issue, one of the things I think is really underexplored, but an exciting new direction is the area of virtual exchange. And I think uh, President Obama announced an initiative, the Christopher Stevens Initiative uh, in 2015 um, uh, to fund virtual exchange, and now the EU uh, has, has funded it as well under the Erasmus um, Initiative for virtual exchange, which takes um, really high quality, uh, you know, semester-long courses of students in Texas and Pakistan and brings them together um, in rigorous ways that is a deep cross-cultural experience, not just the one week of learning public transportation. So I think when we think about international exchange, we have to think, what's the point of it? We want rigorous, cross-cultural, deep, um, engagement that helps people cross boundaries and reduce polarization in this country and outside of this country. Um, and ideally, international exchange can do that. But um, you know, I think it's coming physically to one country or going physically to another is not the only way to do that. So I mean, I have concerns about it. I do think there's some connection to um, the, the bans, the visa bans. But I think there are there are other ways that we can achieve mm -hmm. some of the same goals. Mm -hmm. Tom, do you have any thoughts on the, the, the trend of inflow being reduced into the United States? Yeah, I'm, I'm not known as someone who's uh, ever stinting in criticism of the, the president and his administration, but um, I don't <laughs> think that's it. Um, I think, as Cynthia does, I think at some point you reach a kind of natural topping out level. And I'm even going to say something counterintuitive, which may be that there's a positive um, effect underlying this because one of the things I noticed when I was writing The Death of Expertise and I was looking at colleges was how many small colleges had rebranded themselves as universities um, you know, in, in ways that made no sense. I mean, if you come from the academic world, there is a huge difference between a college and a university. And, you know, suddenly you had these very small um, colleges or state colleges that had been, you know, teachers' colleges rebranding themselves as universities as though they had like a particle collider, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and what they, and what I realized they were doing um, was rebranding to attract foreign students. Uh -huh. And I'm not sure that it, because foreign students don't want to come to a college, they want a degree from a university. And I, I'm not sure it's healthy to build programs at sh schools that are already on shaky academic ground, primarily organized around drawing in foreign money to hand out degrees. And if that if that starts to settle back down and students start saying, well, maybe I can get some courses by distance or take them another country, that may actually be a good thing because I think that explosion of programs was unsustainable. And, and I think we're seeing that. And I don't think it has anything to do with Trump. So this could be just a simple supply and demand issue uh, that is sort of naturally, this would be happening in any administration. Um, I, Republican I, I can't, we don't, you know, Trump we're social scientists, so yeah. we don't have the data yet. Yeah. Um, and going on the rule that anecdotes count as data, um, I will say anecdotally that I already saw this drop off in some of my classes. I mean, again, outside of my, outside of the government institutions, I already saw some of this drop off long before Donald Trump yeah. was president. Okay, I'm going to ask the magic wand question of each of you, and you got about 60 seconds apiece. Right. The magic wand question is this. If you could could wave one wave of the wand tomorrow to fix one thing in higher education, what would it be? Go. Oh, it's easy. I, I have to tell you, I am still signing approval forms on paper that has carbon copies. I can't <laughs> tell you how many generations behind we are in terms of matching where students are in the kind of seamlessness 
that their lives are outside of campus, when they can order a car from their phone, when they can pay. I, I think I bought a house from my phone, like with a DocuSign, but I can't approve a course with a form. So we are technologically so far behind. If I could just get an app to approve student forms, to let them register, to do the kind of seamless life that exists outside of campus, if we could bring that kind of tech and innovation to campus to make everything flow more smoothly, I think we'd see much more resilience in our students. So it's it's about cutting the bureaucracy with uh, bureaucracy. It's innovation, mm -hmm. and it's and it's a culture of change that will recognize that the way we work on campus is is so far removed from how our younger generation is living their lives that that causes frustration for them in ways that lead to failure to persist and, and all kinds of other anxieties. Tom, wave your wand. Um, I will end with a highly contrarian argument here and say that the virtualization of education, including distance and um, virtual programs and all that stuff, the one thing I would wave my wand and say is all, to the extent that this is based on the idea that everybody needs to go to college, I would stop saying that. We have propagandized multiple generations of young people into believing that the only path in life is to go to college. And if you can't go to a residence college, then you go to a distance college. If you can't do that, you take some courses. And you know, we end up with people on, you know, demographically who have had some college or not really a college experience. And I think there are a lot of jobs and a lot of paths to happiness in the world that don't involve college, and we need to stop saying that. Wow, so that's a controversial one, but that's probably a subject for another discussion. Mm -hmm. um, so listen, I, I think we're at, unfortunately out of time right now, but this is a great talk. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.